1: sequence
0: start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on the podcast we affectionately call Space Nuts. I've never figured out why but uh, we're nutty as fruitcakes here so that's probably the reason. My name's Andrew Dunkley your host and with me as always astronomer Fred Watson. Hello Fred. Hello, Andrew Dunkley,
1: um, fellow space knight. Yeah, it's. uh, I don't know whether there's much affection about it. It's just what we call it. Yeah,
0: I mean (laughs) the name was tossed up, and we just went, "Oh yeah, whatever." (laughs) We'll call it. Got to be called something, and that's what happened. Anyway, uh, we got a lot to get through today, so we better get stuck into it. Um, One thing that happened recently is we um, we celebrated, or in some cases commemorated, Australia Day which happens on the 26th of January, marking the arrival of the First Fleet and ultimately the, um, uh, the uh, occupation of this country, for want of a better term. Um, but every year we, uh, we honour... Uh, Australians who have achieved great things. And there have been a couple in the field of astronomy that were honoured this year. So we'll talk about them. One of them, a very good friend of yours, Fred. Indeed.
1: Yeah, um, they all friends
0: of mine, actually. There are yeah, three one, of them. You know, it's, it's, so it's, one especially. It, 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 yeah, that's the thing. Astronomy looks at um, the wide open world and universe but it's actually a um a a very small community globally (laughs) isn't it there's only Mm. 23 of us yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) or maybe a couple more uh we're also uh, going to look at the new image of Ultima Thule. that data keeps coming back Uh, that's the uh, funny looking ducky sort of potato rock out past pluto and we've had a question from andrew in newcastle which we're going to tackle Uh, andrew's got a problem a technical problem, and he's come to us <laughs> uh, for the answer. So <laughs> we're going to solve your problems, Andrew. We are. And if we can't, I've got the name of a really good psychiatrist. Okay, um, let's begin, Fred. Uh, but can I, can I just steal the limelight for one little moment? Of course, absolutely. I'm very, very happy to announce and um, uh, tell you that uh, last week, I uh, released my latest book. and Yay! Uh, As you know, I've written a, a few over the years. I wrote a sports psychology book just for the fun of it, just to see if I could do it. I wrote a, a book about my grandfather in World War One, which came out as a, an audio book, and then we put it in uh, on paper. And then after my trip to Europe last year to the battlefields, I, I rewrote part of it, so we released a second edition. But while all that was going on, I was toying away with a science fiction novel and it is now out and uh, I'm very, very proud of it. My brother designed the cover and uh, it's called Parallax. And uh, just to sort of give you the short version, it's about a bloke who um, is in you know, his early 50s. He gets thrust back to his birth by a solar anomaly and has to start his life all over again. Uh, interestingly enough, all the knowledge he's gained in his 50 plus years stayed with him. <laughs> And in his new timeline, there's a strange company called Parallax and they want everything he knows. So that's the basis of the story. There's a lot more goes on. There are twists, there are turns, there's, um, there's you know, a bit of a time travel paradox issue, there's multiple universe issue. A lot of the stuff that inspired the story came out of um, interviews you and I have done over the years and, and the podcast, Fred. And there's this strange character in it called Dr. Fred Wilson.
1: Wow, good grief.
0: Fred Wilson, I know him personally. And he's called on a few times to try and uh, deal with um, some of the issues that are confronted by our hero. So uh, it's out, it's available everywhere, right around the world through bookstores and online and an e-book version. So uh, I'd love for people to read it and tell me what they think because uh, I have no idea. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you because I will download it and read
1: it Andrew. I look forward to doing
0: that. Well, it, it was a lot of fun and uh I'm I'm you know it it's my first shot at science fiction and and science fiction's my favorite genre. Yeah. So I uh, I had to write one. I've got probably 10 more science fiction stories in my head uh and written down so that I don't forget them and uh, I'll be working on my next one real soon, but um yeah, got to flog the hell out of this one first. Yeah, yeah but and many congratulations. Thank you, Fred. Yeah, well, as as somebody who's written several books yourself, you know what the process is like, and uh, it can be really frustrating, but also very rewarding. And uh, yeah, look for the cover. You can't miss the cover. It is bright purple and blue and pink, and yeah, it stands out. So um, yeah, let me know what you think. Really, really would like your feedback. Uh, so to the important stuff now, Fred and the Australia Day honours and a, a couple of uh, people you know, one in particular, have uh, have um, got themselves a gong, as we say in Australia. That's right. Yeah,
1: that, that's uh, the the usual term. So let me um, let me uh, put them in some sort of random order, beginning with uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Elaine Sadler, who is professor of um, astrophysics in the School of Physics at the University of Sydney and she also directs a centre called Castro which is um, basically a, 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 an astronomy uh, consortium. Castro is a network of something like 100 scientists over seven university nodes. It's a rather a big um, institution. So Elaine has done a fantastic job. There's a kind of personal connection I have with Elaine. Of course, as, as you were saying a minute ago, there are only Actually, about 10,000 astronomers, professional astronomers throughout the world. That's roughly the membership of the International Astronomical Union. And Australia has something like 500 working astronomers. And that sounds like a big number, but we still tend to know each other, at least within our own demographic. Uh, And I hate to lump Elaine into my demographic because she's quite a bit younger than me. But we do share uh, one thing in common, and that is that we were both sitting on the summit of Siding Spring Mountain uh, in the Warren Bungle range of Northwestern New South Wales, where the biggest telescope in the country is. Uh, I had time on that telescope uh, the rain was pouring down steadily uh, and I was uh, supposedly scheduled on the big telescope, Elaine was scheduled on one of the other telescopes on Siding Spring and there were two or three other people there um, and altogether, together we made a fantastic night of Scrabble playing because playing, there wasn't <laughs> anything else to do. Uh, but that was my very first visit to Australia, Andrew and I'll w- probably embarrass uh, Elaine by telling you that that was 40, 41 years ago this year, it was in 1978. So Elaine Uh, It's been marvellous to see Elaine's career uh, flourish. She's a great scientist. She is also a great manager uh, and well-deserving of her Order of Australia. She has achieved the rank of an officer of the Order of Australia, which is uh, sort of the the, the three bands to the order and and hers is the middle one. Uh, Also in the middle is um, another very eminent uh, astronomer, Ron Eakers. Uh, Ron is from South Australia, uh, although he did spend quite a lot of time uh, in the United States because uh, he was director of the Very Large Array there uh, and uh, actually was also the foundation director of the Australia Telescope National Facility, which is a radio astronomy facility here in Australia. So, um, a, a, a very uh, well known, very eminent radio astronomer. Um, uh, now Kind of retired, although it didn't seem to have made any difference. You see him at all the you know, all the colloquia and all the talks and things like that. Uh, Ron ha- has the um, distinction, and maybe it's an embarrassing one. Uh, he was the president of the International Astronomical Union and indeed chaired the meeting in 2006, if I remember rightly. It was on August the 26th uh, when Pluto was reclassified as a dwarf planet. So he had to oversee Ooh very difficult meeting because astronomers were very divided on their opinions about that and he managed I think to some extent to pull it together with the help actually of Jocelyn Bell-Burnell who we spoke about recently. Jocelyn was uh, also there. Um, So uh, yes he had a difficult task on his hands that day uh, and um, you know maybe that's not what he'd like best to be remembered for because it's still
0: quite controversial. Oh yeah I was watching a a TV show the other day that had nothing to do with stars or astronomy. And just in the middle of the conversation, Pluto came up and, and one of the characters said, it's not even a planet anymore. I mean, it's <laughs> it's getting into everything. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, indeed it it's one That's of those right. so, uh, ongoing yeah. issues, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so it's all Ron's fault. He, he too is, a, is an officer of the Order of Australia uh, as of, uh, of, uh, of the announcement on Saturday. But uh, the person uh, I know best of this group uh, is uh, Professor David Malin, formerly um, our sort of astronomer-astrophotographer at the what was then the Anglo-Australian Observatory. He retired, I think, in 2001 Uh uh, but basically, well, uh, like Ron, you know, he, he never really disappeared. He he kept going with his astronomical imaging. He is very famous for putting the colour into astronomical imaging in the 1970s and 1980s. He was the photographic specialist for the then new Anglo-Australian telescope, the biggest telescope in Australia, the one we've just been talking about. Uh, he um, pioneered a number of Uh, techniques, photographic techniques, uh, which uh, have funny names like unsharp masking and contrast enhancement, uh, things that are now done routinely in digital processing. But of course, he did it all photographically. Mm. And he pioneered a three color method of uh, making true color images of deep space objects. Uh, And for the first time, in those days, people could see these radiant colors. Uh, in the processing that he did that allowed you to see things in space as you would see them if your eyes were thousands if not millions of times more sensitive he um, he started his life actually or started his working life as an industrial chemist he worked in the north of England for a company called Ciber Geige he credits them as having nurtured his uh, his interest in science and in uh, technology because he he didn't go to university he always regarded that as one of the uh, you know one of the things that uh, his life let him down it wasn't because he wasn't up to it he just did not have the opportunity Mm. He grew up in Lancashire. He's got an accent a bit like mine, Andrew, although he claims it's different because uh, we come from opposite sides of the Lancashire-Yorkshire border. Uh, And as as David says, there's now good came out of Yorkshire except the road to Lancashire. Uh, (laughs) It's a very well-known saying among Lancastrians. So I'm absolutely thrilled that... um, David uh, has now um, been rewarded or at least recognised in Australian honours. He he has had many honours and prizes from Mm. international sources, but now here in Australia he is a member of the Order of Australia and that is brilliant news and I'm absolutely delighted about that.
0: Yeah, I've I've, uh, seen a lot of his work over the years and uh, it is stunning and if you do a Google search or any search for that matter on the internet, just put David Malan in, and click on your images, uh, you just get smashed in the face by these (laughs) wondrous, wondrous pictures that he's created, and they are stunning, Uh, well worth looking at. And congratulations to David and all the Australia Day Award recipients, uh, well-deserved. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, Back to the show. Roger, you're a lot here. also. Space nuts. Okay, Fred, it's, it's like uh, visiting an old friend. We keep going back to the New Horizons probe and the data it's sending back, uh, not only the stuff from Pluto, but on New Year's Day, one of the great achievements in, um, I suppose, astronomical um, investigation or exploration was uh, the uh, passing by of the object known as Ultima Thule and the latest image is coming back, bearing in mind uh, this data is going to keep coming back over the next 20 months or so. So um, there'll be more new images to see, I imagine.
1: Um, that's right. In fact, there's um, apparently another one on its way. Um, so, yeah, the reason why we're talking about this yet again, and we've certainly um, given it a, quite a lot of prominence in the last few weeks, uh, Ultima Thule is revealing its secrets. We're seeing steadily higher resolution images. And the new one that has just been received, and of course it takes a matter of time because of the the, the very low um, uh, bandwidth of the signals coming back from the New Horizons spacecraft at 6 billion kilometers. billion kilometres away. That's because they're using the Australian NBN service. Um, No doubt that is the case, yes. Mm. (laughs) Uh, It's it's now seen at a resolution uh, which is quite fine actually considering what we're looking at, 135 metres per pixel, Uh, but that uh, comes with um, a wide-angle camera or from a wide-angle camera on board New Horizons and we know that the the same image that we're looking at, uh, you and I are looking at, maybe maybe our listeners are too, uh, the same image is is also uh, in the memory banks of New Horizons taken at a much higher resolution by something called the Long Range Reconnaissance Imager, otherwise known as LORI, uh, but that has not yet been downfed to uh, the uh, Earth stations so we can see it. However, we've Certainly, we are getting some very, very enticing um, information from this uh, wide-angle view that we've got of uh, Ultima Thule. It's about 33 kilometres from one end to the other. It's two blobs stuck together, uh, one now called Ultima, the other Thule, if I remember rightly, the big one's Ultima. Uh, And you can already see um, evidence of cratering on this body. Um, some very peculiar-looking features. It, it, it's got uh, uh, the smaller, the smaller part of the uh, of the object, which is like the head of the snowman. The smaller ball seems to have a huge crater uh, in its side. With yeah, it small... looks
0: like it's been hit
1: hard by something big. Exactly, that's right, and no doubt there are others all over because that's how these things, you know, how they come together by things crashing into them. But uh, it's also interesting, though, that we can just see the, 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 the image, just in case um, some of your listeners are not actually seeing it, uh, because we're not on television here, uh, so that will be quite understandable. But when you have a look online, uh, the image uh, is basically the the sunlit side of Ultima Thule. But there is just a hint of what's called the Terminator, that's the division between the bright side and the dark side, at the top of the image, um, where the sun is basically, the sunlight is just uh, horizontal uh, Mm. on the surface of Ultima Thule. And you can see a number of smaller craters or pits. It's not clear what they are. They could be the result of, you know, outgassing um, activity within the object itself, where gases are coming out for some reason or another, um, or they could be small impact craters. My guess is, looking at them uh, with my expert eye, my guess is that it's the latter, uh, that they are probably smaller impact craters. But it is just a fantastic thing to see. This is a um, a, a basically, a monochrome image that we're looking at, although there the is color available on that camera. We know it's already that it's a sort of pinkish red color. Lots of bright streaks on it, which um, uh, also suggests that there is activity of some kind or has been on the surface because bright stuff on an object like this is usually the more recent stuff, mm. uh, you know, powder that's been deposited on the surface. Remember, you
0: can, it, you can certainly see that at the join where they've come together. Indeed, that's right. Yeah. And and it's two
1: big balls of ice, basically. Uh, so um, it, it is going to be lightish in colour. Uh, and as you said, the the neck region, the snowman's neck is much brighter. And the suggestion there is that that is powdery stuff that's fallen into the, the crack between these two objects that when they came together so that they, they actually... Um, they actually, uh, th- th- you know, they, they don't join as such. They are just in contact. So um, what, colleague- what keeps them together, Fred? And, and could, they, could they be torn apart? Gravity. Yeah, it's a great, uh, look, that's a great question, which leads into something I was just about to say, uh, because um, one of my colleagues in Canberra um, did a quick calculation when we saw the first images of what the pressure might be between them. Uh, given um, the the fact that we've got these two objects, which both have not very much gravity, but enough to hold them together, and the pressure is is high. It's in the regions of uh, region of tons per square inch, uh, uh, depending on. Just depends on how much contact area there is between them. he He was assuming he just took a a wild guess as to what the contact area is between them. Of course, it's all if it's all at one point, then it's a very high number. Uh, if it's if they've kind of flattened out a bit so that these two things have have squashed together slightly, then the pressure holding them together is much less. Yeah, so it's like surface tension, I suppose
0: in it almost some yeah it-
1: it, 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 that's right, and, and maybe, you know, there may be effects of that kind that, uh, that that help to... It's basically gravity that's doing the job, but there could be interesting surface uh, effects going on uh, at the neck region of the snowman. Yeah. Uh, the great thing is we're going to see far more over the next few weeks. Um, you and I will be hard-pressed not to talk about it on Space Nuts, so uh, I apologise in advance to you... <laughs> You might have heard enough about it already, <laughs> you're going to get more.
0: <laughs> well, you just never know what the next image is going to reveal and it might be something incredible that it we've might. never seen before. So uh, that's the reason to, to do these missions and to, um, to find as much as we can, download as much data as we can. And with the technology that's available, we can do some amazing things now. And as we mentioned last time we talked about this, They've got their eye on another uh, object, so they're going to do a, a second flyby. So uh, uh, it'll be interesting to compare notes, really.
1: That's right. That, that's um, Yeah, we, we, we await further news on that. They will. Uh, the NASA mission scientists, Alan Stern, the principal scientist, uh, uh, will be, I'm sure, musing over what kind of um, trajectory uh, adjustment they can make to bring another um, uh, Kuiper Belt object, these distant objects are called, uh, into the range of New Horizons.
0: Mm. All right. We watch with interest. Um, but, yeah, it's fascinating to uh, to follow the journey of uh, the New Horizons probe. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson.
1: Three, two, one.
0: Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, an audience question. This uh, comes from a Novacastrian.
1: Oh good. Like mm.
0: yourself. Uh yes, yes. Andrew from Newcastle in New South Wales. Uh, I grew up in Maitland, Andrew. So I'm just I was just up the road. Uh spent a lot of my youth in and around Newcastle. Um it's a lovely city too, just a beautiful city. Really um just one of the jewels of the east coast of Australia, if I may say so. Uh, Andrew has a question, and thank you for sending it in, Andrew. I bought an ex-Army silver compass tritium glow-in-the-dark for my astronomical observatory, and sadly it doesn't work. Both the tritium has decayed too much, and apparently the Rio in the concrete pad is distorting the Earth's magnetic field and causing a major error in pointing to magnetic north. Uh, sad, but I got to thinking... We have compasses in steel battleships, submarines, four-wheel drives, etc., etc., et cetera, and they all work. Why am I having a problem, and is it an astronomical anomaly? Uh, and he says, keep up the wise and convivial podcast.
1: <laughs> I think, actually, this is where we might have plenty of conviviality, but we run out of wisdom <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, I like all compasses too. Um, in fact, I... Um, uh, i i have a small collection of uh, military astro compasses which were used in bombers during the second world war wow they're perfect little analog computers quite extraordinary things just built like a little telescope mm. mounting with lots of scales and knobs on them i fell in love with them when i was about nine uh, and i think i've got three still it might be four even i can't remember um, but they were used for navigation uh, as i said in, in in aircraft in world war two of course magnetic compasses are, uh, are more common. Uh, and I've got one or two of those as well because they're very nice. Um, the interesting thing about magnetic compasses is that they point to the magnetic north rather than to the true north and as we were discussing I think it was last week actually was, yes. uh, Andrew that's um, that's on the wonder is the magnetic north pole it's sort of uh, hot footing across from northern Canada to Siberia so that's um, that is an, an issue with mag- magnetic compasses and it, it's why um, we have to have this world magnetic model uh, the map of the world that shows where uh, where the magnetic Magnetic North uh, truly is, depending on where you are on the on the surface of the globe. Um, it is it, also true, though, as exactly as Andrew says, that uh, magnetic compasses have been used on ships and uh, indeed submarines and and um, other vehicles, uh, and they they all work. And while that's kind of true to a to a level, uh, it's. Um, uh, it's still better to have a gyro compass, which actually you can set uh, to be pointing true north, and as it as, sh- as long as it runs, it will keep pointing that way. Uh, but I think the problem uh, that Andrew is alluding to, uh, why do they work in steel battleships, for example? Mm. Um, and that goes back to this really interesting issue of uh, what's called de- degaussing um, a ship, uh, and that's to get rid of the magnetic field. Yes. Um, Uh, it's uh, apparently uh, is something and certainly the term degaussing uh, because gauss is the the um, basically the unit of magnetic field that we use in physics uh, a unit of magnetism the gauss named after karl friedrich gauss a very well-known german mathematician in the uh, in the um, uh, 19th century Uh, so but the process of degaussing which is a term coined by uh, actually a British uh, naval officer during the Second World War, um, is a way of reducing the magnetic field of a ship to zero, or as near zero as you can get. You can never get it quite to zero. And that was important because at that time, the, magnetic, the, the, the German mines were actually triggered by magnetism. Uh, they were called magnetic mines for exactly that reason that uh, they detected the magnetic field of an approaching ship and that triggered uh, the detonator which exploded the mine and so um, it was a very dangerous thing to have in the in the waters of particularly the north atlantic and the and the North Sea. Um, the British fleet suffered i think quite heavy losses until this degaussing process was introduced uh, so all kinds of all kinds of ways were tried. I think they used coils and things of that sort to try and reduce the strength of the magnetic field. Uh, I, it's got quite an interesting history, which is fairly easy to find uh, on the on the web. Uh, I think uh, special equipment was uh, was used, but there was also um, a, a, a basically a, a strategic method of randomising the magnetism of the ship's hull. By changing direction in the ship as often as you could. So, but the, what happens, you see, the reason why the ship's tail gets magnetic. Is because it's sailing in a more or less a straight line, uh, and, it, and it basically aligns at some in some degree with the Earth's magnetic field. And because it's doing that all the time, and there's vibration taking place because of the ship's engines, uh, you get the ship's hull being magnetized. Uh, but if you if you randomize the direction in which you're travelling, then that tends to reduce the um, you know reduce the, um, the 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 effect of the Earth's magnetism. Uh, the, of course, also. You could do that. Um, um, I mean, to you know, if you if you were already degaussed, it was a good way of keeping it that way. Because as soon as you start, you degauss the ship, and you go off in a particular direction, it's going to start getting magnetic again. Yeah. So it's uh, interesting stuff. We're now, of course, talking about naval history rather than why Andrew's magne- magnetic compass doesn't work. Um, but it could well be due to, as he suggests, the reinforcing steel reinforcing rods in the concrete base of his observatory.
0: Yeah, well, maybe he should um, get a new base. Although I was just reading through his email, there was a second part there. He said, I tried de-lousing, but it didn't work. It killed all the insects. <laughs> So I think he's on the wrong path there. But, um, no, seriously though, uh, it, it is really quite a, a fascinating piece of science, and and uh, yeah, he he may well have to just um, find something else to replace well, that concrete pad.
1: I suspect that, um, in fact, uh, having a compass in your observatory. Uh, building, which I think is what he 's doing is astronomical observatory uh, it 's not really something that 's essential because uh, you your your observatory really needs to be aligned with true north not not magnetic north, and most observatories once you put them down and point them in the right direction, they stay put uh, so a compass will be just a, a nice uh, i think an ornament more than anything else, which
0: I applaud entirely. I love having things like that
1: around myself mm,
0: fantastic well i hope we helped andrew it does sound like your um your concrete pad could be the issue or the uh the rio inside it uh i don't know whether you managed to get a new batch of tritium though Um,
1: (laughs) that's a bit harder to get
0: (laughs) but uh, yeah that's the stuff like he says glow in the dark that's that um light light green stuff is it
1: yeah that's right that's that's tritium's actually um, a gas but but that's Basically, the, uh, the, 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 the luminous paint uh, often has a high tritium content. Mm,
0: mm. Okay. Um, thanks again, Andrew. Well, loved the question. Uh, we love all your questions, and we try to get to as many as we can. And we certainly love talking to you, Fred, and hearing from you. So thanks, as always, for being a part of Space Nuts.
1: It's a great pleasure, Andrew. I wish I knew what I was talking about.
0: Yeah, <laughs> me too. And uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll catch up with you again next time. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. That's Fred Watson, an astronomer at large, uh, half the team here on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening. Thank you for buying my book, Parallax. And we will talk to you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom and Stitcher, or your favorite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Sights.com.